So today is Palm Sunday, and uh, the reading may have felt a little less Palm Sunday-ish than normal. Um, I hope that by the end of this, that in the same way that this passage has captivated me, that it'll hopefully captivate you in the same way. This um, sermon I'm drawing actually on an article written by uh, a biblical scholar, David Burnett. Um, when I heard him talk about it, it just so cap- captured me that I turned it into a sermon for, for today. And I hope that it'll capture you in the same way. Uh, and then final thing is, um, I always take questions at the end if you're interested. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you that together we can all come to be in your presence to celebrate your um, entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of this week. And just again, just to meditate on your word, to be transformed by what you've put in your word, to change us into who you want us to be. And Lord, I just pray that uh, as we we are here together, that we would be transformed in your name. So, Uh, To start, I'm actually going to tell you what we're going to end with, and that way then you can either get a little nap, or at least you can hold me accountable that by the end of this, this is what I'm actually going to tell you. So one, uh, Luke portrays this whole scene in Luke 22, this section, 31 through 62. He portrays this as Jesus and the disciples being tempted by Satan. Two, Peter's betrayal is mirrored by the disciples' betrayal of Jesus with the swords. Three, We overcome by knowing where the true battle lies and knowing the right weapons, such as prayer. And three, or four, sorry, four, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity uh, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, Jeremiah 29, 11. And that one may seem a little bit of a stretch based off of this passage, but hopefully by the end we'll see that that is true. So, um, next slide. So this is a fun optical illusion for you. And what you'll find is is that no matter where you look, there is a white dot in the middle of four squares. But wherever you're not looking, you'll find that the the dot appears to not be white. And the reason this is, is because at the very center of your eye, there is a greater amount of cells for high detail. And as you move away from the center, you have less and less of those cells. And so what your brain is doing is basically filling in, best guess, what it thinks is actually in certain spots. And in this case, this picture is taking advantage of that. So your brain says, well, you know, around the corners, there seems to be a lot more black and some gray, so it's filling those circles in and making them darker. So it's taking advantage of of what your brain is doing. So you do this a lot. You fill in information to make sense of a situation. So, for instance, in this passage, who struck the servant of the high priest? Peter. Yes. But we didn't get that from Luke. That's from John. John tells us that fact. Luke actually tells us something very different. If we go to Luke 22, 49 to 50... And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. So you'll notice there's all of this corporate they, we, them 
behavior. It's not an individual. It seems to be saying that this is an action of the group and not of Peter. This is something that is more about how the group is behaving and responding and less about how Peter's responding, which is interesting because we know that that's not the same. So there's something about the inspiration of how Luke was inspired to write the story that is different than how John shows the story. And we shouldn't miss or ignore that fact. We should actually like, dive in and go, why, why should that matter and why should we care? So just pulling back then from that passage, we'll recognize that at the very beginning, Jesus of this whole passage in, 30, in verse 31, Jesus talks with Peter. He talks with Peter, and then he moves from there, and he talks with the disciples. And then we move to the garden where Jesus is there. He's praying and the disciples are sleeping. From there we move and we see then the disciples' actions. We saw in that case, instead of saying Peter's doing something, it's the disciples' actions. And finally, we see Peter's actions. Now you might say, oh, David, this V-shape pattern, I'm really tired of it. It seems to be showing up a lot. It's there a lot of places. Now, realistically, one of the reasons that would be the case, which is we just don't, we forget, which is that for us, the written word is extremely inexpensive. For a society that values words and language but can't write them down in large quantities and distribute, you end up telling a lot of stories. So wouldn't it be convenient if, if you can remember how to get to the middle of the story you can work your way back, back out just by remembering the first half of the story. Does that make sense? So in the same way, lots of stories are told like this in the Bible, and that is one of the reasons. And this isn't just a Jewish culture thing. This is a lot of Greek culture, Roman culture, sees the same type of thing. And it's be, one of the reasons is because it helps us to remember how to tell the story. We're working in, and we're working back out. So we're going to jump over to Luke 9, and this is where Jesus sends out the 12 um, to go out. And verse 3 says, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 70, or the 72, depending on which version you have. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So it seems to be pretty clear. Don't take much when you're going out. Go up where I'm sending you, and you don't need all these things. So when we get to Luke 22, and Jesus says, in verse 35, and he said to them, When I send you, sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Seems pretty self-explanatory. And he says to them, but now let the one who had, has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So all of a sudden, all the things that we've been told not to do, we're all of a sudden being told to do. All of a sudden, we do need these things, and these things we didn't need, or we did need, we're now selling to get something else. And that automatically should raise a flag for us. If Jesus has told them twice to do these things and there's a certain way to do it, and now all of a sudden we're told to do the opposite, we're going, hmm, something's wrong, something's weird here. What are we supposed to do with that? 
So to notice the next um, thing that we fill in as we read, um, and I'm going to keep putting the slide up because I find it an, the, the optical illusion annoying, so I'm going to, you can all enjoy it with me. Luke 4. This is the end of the uh, temptation narrative in Luke. And verse 13, and it says, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now what's interesting is, is that only three Gospels cover the temptation narrative. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Mark, when it's finished, it's finished. That's it. There's no to-be-continued sort of statement at the end. Luke does. He leaves us with this to-be-continued statement. So when we get into Luke, we're going, so there's going to be, Satan's going to show up again? And what does that look like? And so what I would suggest is, is that this is what we're going to see, is, is that as we get into Luke 22, we are to be seeing the second temptation. And it shouldn't surprise us that this temptation happens to happen in a garden. Ha! Surprise! I don't know, where in the world did that come from? So un- unexpected. So Luke 22, verses 3 and 4, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of how he might betray to him, him to them. And they were glad, glad and agreed to give him money. So now we see, all of a sudden, Satan entering into Judas, and now we're going to see Satan in, the, in Judas, with Judas, basically creating a temptation, okay? And so we've already been told when Jesus is talking to Simon, 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 behold, Satan demanded to have you. And what's interesting in this portion is, is that, that you, in verse 3, he says it there, and that, you, that he might sift you like wheat, that in both of those, those aren't you in the singular, those are actually y'all, if you were, for the Missouris. So um, it's you all. He's not talking about just Simon at this point. He's saying you all, corporately, Satan wants to test all of you. And then he moves into specifically talking to Simon about how Simon's, what's, what he's gonna, what, what's going to happen with Simon. So then we move and we see that at the end when Jesus is arrested, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So here we have Judas, who has Satan and you know, basically inside of him at this point, showing up. And all of a sudden, we start to see this temptation happening. And the disciples' response is to take up the sword corporately. That's what Luke is showing us. And that what's interesting about this is, is that who, who's really wielding the sword here is the ones that are, on, are the, the ones that have come, right? Because he says, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? So when the disciples take up the swords, they're no longer on the side of Jesus. They have now sided with the other side. And so they've moved now from being on the side of Jesus and have moved to the other side. 
And so whether or not they're committing, committing the violence against the other party, they've still moved and they're no longer on the right side. And so they've betrayed Jesus in one sense is what's happening here. So one other really useful thing that helps us to recognize this is, is in um, Jesus is talking with the, the, the disciples at the beginning here. And he said to them, when, you, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. But he said to them, now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is, what is written about me has its fulfillment. Again, what's interesting here is the uniqueness of this passage. In both Matthew and in Mark, the passage that is used is Zechariah 13. And it's this, this, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. And it's clearly talking about the same event. And in that case, the disciples are scattered when Jesus is taken. Luke draws on a completely different passage. John draws on a completely different passage. And if you look for that one, you, people actually can't figure out exactly what passage he's referring to. Um, it seems to be an amalgamation of multiple. So Luke here is drawing specifically on Isaiah 53. So we know that when someone draws on a passage, especially in the New Testament, that often what they are doing is not just referring to that one scripture, but often to more of what's around it. And then therefore, we would expect that potentially we might see some of those things in what's going on in Isaiah 53 in this passage. So if we go to Isaiah 53, and we read verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Only in Luke does Jesus heal the high priest's servant's ear. Only in Luke. So again, we're seeing some of that healing taking place. That is only because we're drawing on Isaiah 53. Not, that's not the only reason. But one of the reasons to recognize it is the fact that this is how this scripture is interplaying with itself. Verse 8 my oppression, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. So he's not just struck for anybody. He's not struck for generally the nations. He's struck for the Israelites. And so you can see Israel being unfaithful here in, the, in some form, but in seeing the disciples. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So again, we see Jesus not partaking in the violence that everyone else around him is taking a part in, because corporately the disciples have now taken part in something. And finally, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, what I find may be helpful here is to think of the transgressors slightly differently in this case, which is that transgressors might be easier to be thought of as unfaithful or faithless. And so in this case, the disciples have taken on the form of the unfaithful or faithless and have sided with the wrong side. They have now joined in with Satan and instead have taken and joining in with Jesus. So that helps a little bit. So we come back to the structure of overall what's going on in this passage. 
we see Jesus predicting Peter's denial. Then Jesus is predicting the disciples' denial. Then Jesus is praying in the garden, and the disciples are sleeping. The disciples then actually deny Jesus in, in not a verbal way, but in an, actually in an action. They no longer are representing what Jesus is and what he's brought. They have now sided with the wrong side and are no longer functioning and living into what Jesus has taught them and showed them already when he sent them out with the 12 and with the 70. And they have decided to side with the other side and failed. And in the same way, we see Peter's denial. Now, if we get to this point, you would say, well, David, we've sort of covered the first two of my conclusions, but it leaves a lot to be desired, and it feels a little sad. So what's really interesting is to focus on the center portion of this passage, and that that can help us to give us clarity. And so if you consider this image here, um, what you'll find is, is that every other column appears to be either sticking out or sticking in to the projector. And the reason that is is because your brain is trained to recognize that sh shading, light always comes from above and creates a certain shading depending on what is around it. And so in this case, there's the columns that look sticking out and those that are sticking in. But what I've done is I've marked the X in the top left-hand corner of the left-hand one and then I rotated 180 degrees. And so everything's opposite. And so the ones that look like they were sticking in are now sticking out and vice versa. So all it's really doing is tricking your brain. And so that's important when we read a passage sometimes and we get a conclusion that seems contradictory. So for instance, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew has Jesus saying, those who live by the sword die by the sword in this passage. So if we read Luke and all of a sudden come out saying, ah, but in this case, swords are okay. We got to stop for a second and go, something's wrong. One of them must not work. It can't be quite this clear. So that's where we've sort of looked. And so what we want to look now is, is that center portion. The way Michael actually described this a couple weeks ago is, is when you get this V-shaped structure, um, the middle is sort of like getting to the top of a hill. It gives you perspective on everything else. And so that middle portion, you see Jesus coming in to the garden and he's praying. And he, and he came and went as he was accustomed to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from the heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So twice, twice Jesus gives them the example, tells them what to do. To be successful in temptation, you need to know your weapons. Your weapon is prayer. That's your response here in the situation. And then Jesus demonstrates it in the middle of this. So again, he tells him pray. He prays in the middle and there's prayer at the other end. And he keeps saying, guys, you need to pray. So right off the bat here, we can already see how this entire thing could have shifted if the disciples had responded appropriately. Just in the same way that Jesus is demonstrating how to do it, the disciples are invited to be successful in the situation. But they aren't. 
because they don't do what they're told to. They don't listen. They don't obey. Now that stop right there. That's already great. But what I think is really interesting about this is, if you think about this, Jesus tells his disciples the reason he knows that they're going to betray him is because they're going to fulfill a prophecy about him. Now, if you were Jesus and you knew that there was going to be a prophecy fulfilled and that it was going to be filled in a certain way, would you twice tell them how to not have that happen? Think about that for a second. Right. Yeah, so in some ways, it feels like it should be anchored and it should happen. And Jesus is like, yes, it's going to happen. By the way, here's how to prevent it from happening. Twice he tells them that. That's just amazing. If Jesus has to choose, it appears, if just from the way we're reading this, that if Jesus has to choose between a prophecy being fulfilled and his disciples failing, or his disciples being successful, Jesus is going to choose his disciples being successful. That's amazing. And it also raises a bunch of questions about how our relationship with prophecy should be. Because clearly Jesus doesn't seem it as anchored and set to where we have to believe that this is exactly how it's going to happen, but that he can change things. So that's amazing in itself. But that, so we come to this point where Jesus is willing to choose to see his disciples be successful. And so I hope that in some ways that that captivates you the way it captivates me. So just to sort of wrap this, the argument in a nutshell is that Luke is tracking on Isaiah 53. In his presentation of the elements of Isaiah 53 in the episodes that we've talked about, he structures this shape of the the entire passage in this V-shape so that your attention is drawn first to Peter and then to the disciples, then to the prayer then back to the disciples, and then to Peter with the denials. So that's the overall shape. Before I close, any questions? Yeah. Um, that scripture about there's going to come a time where you're going to need to sell your clothes and take them. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do it modern. You know, we can buy guns. You know, but the, the real thing that's portrayed here is that we still have to follow Jesus, which is not taking up the sword, but to pray. Yeah. It's a little convoluted, isn't it? <laughs> it's complicated. And it's not easy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. We have a different sword. And that makes a big difference. Anything else? Okay. So, I have a question. Yes. With prophecy, because mm-hmm. you see throughout the scriptures where it says that it may be fulfilled, that it may be fulfilled. Is this one of those things like where Isaiah went and told him to get your future house in order, you're going to die? Mm-hmm. And he's declaring the word of the Lord to him, and then God changes his mind. Sure. When this is what God said, now God. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really complicated. I mean, if you look at, um, for instance, the story of David, 
um, when Saul's chasing him, there's a one point where um, David's trying to figure out what to do, and he's in a city. And while he's in that city, he consults the ephod and says basically, like, is Saul going to come? And the answer is, yeah, Saul's totally going to come. So then the next question is, is are they going to turn them over? Um, will the city people turn me over to Saul? And the answer is yes. And so David doesn't go, well, darn it, I guess I'm just going to sit here and wait. He goes, okay, I'm going to leave. And he leaves. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't let, like, this, the, our relationship, I think, with prophecy is very like, well, this is stated, and so it's going to happen, and that's sort of the end of it. And I don't find that to be, like, ac- an accurate representation of how that is. That doesn't mean that there aren't times where it is, but, like, that we, we, we've, we treat it so passively or locked in place that it makes it complicated. Yeah. So, yes, conundrum. Conundrum. Correct. What's going to happen, but we don't have to try to make it happen. Right, yeah, you can... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you, you know, you, it raises lots of questions about, like, well, what does, would this have looked like if they had prayed? Um, we, you know, we, we aren't given that insight. But, you know, it's just, it's one of those things to where, yeah, you sort of go, like, well, what... Jesus clearly wanted them to be successful, um, not to be fail, fail on that. And I think that, yeah... Um, Sometimes that, the, the way that prophecy works, you know, sort of Daryl about saying, like, you're going to die, or things that those, it's very complicated. And one of the reasons we're invited to, mm, to be in sort of that relationship with, with God is to be meditating on that um, and to be having that conversation. Hey, how should I be relating with this? So when I think of God giving a prophetic word, I have to I'm gonna run through the different what's the word aspects of prophecy to what is God saying that if, if this is a prophetic word in the sense of encouragement or building up or whatever, that that is true, that doesn't change. But now here is another dynamic of prophecy that I have to test and weigh out. Sure. Okay. That's one of the... Yeah, yeah. So I, just so you're saying like that, well, there's both the encouragement side. There's also the side of sort of weighing out and evaluating um, and how does that all sort of interplay? Yeah. I, I don't have a short answer for that. <laughs> and I think that that's what Scripture shows us, though, is it's, very, it's, it's complicated. Um, yeah. Mm. being wrapped with the girdle. Mm. He says, if you go, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And his relatives and friends that were there said, don't go. Yeah. So he got a prophetic word. But Paul's response was, I'm still going to go. Sure. So I'm thinking he had a choice. This is a prophetic word. But I'm kind of putting this in the conundrum thing. But I'm still feeling that this is what God told him to do. In spite of this is what's going to happen. And your choice mm-hmm. is what I'm going to do. Sure. I think it's complicated, but that's what he chose to do. It's like, you got a prophetic word, and here's what I'm going to do. 
I think, I think Paul is, is faced with that. I mean, we see that this, that section of, of um, Acts parallels Jesus' life in a lot of ways, where Jesus is, in the same way, recognizing that there are certain um, things that are going to come f- into fruition through what he's about to do. And in the same way, Paul recognizes the same type of thing. Um, and he, he can choose to potentially not participate in it. Um, but that there is something about participating in it that brings a, a greater um, accomplishment because um, it moves him, you know, it moves him in, into Rome, in, into sort of standing in front of Caesar that was because he was faithful in spite of the uncomfortability of those things. So. One last final thing, if I may. And this whole thing where it's complicated, maybe there's an opportunity down the road to kind of unpack this a little bit more if it's complicated for our benefit. Yeah, sure. Not just something to occupy time because if this, is, this isn't, I don't want to say that's something we'll never figure out, but if there's something for us to dig into, then I think it behooves us to, to dig into it. Sure. Yeah. I would say I, I, I'd love to hear somebody tell, to, to cover that well, because I don't feel like I'm the one qualified for that. More than I can point out that, yes, there are complications. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Richard. This is similar. It's not quite the same. Years ago, I had heard a, a story a true story, uh, a Christian couple, mm-hmm. and it was either the wife or the husband or both that had a, a dream or a vision about their little child being struck by a truck. <clears throat> so they prayed against it, and she turned out getting struck by a cement truck, but it was like she had a big pillow behind the truck. Mm-hmm. And she didn't get hurt. Yeah. And so something about that inspiration, um, where they, you know, they they saw this um, this story playing out, where she's going to get hit, and then praying in, you know, pr- actively participating in in prayer as Jesus keeps telling them, you know, like actively participate, don't just um, sleep, but actually get involved in the situation. How does that completely transform the situation? Like you said, to where she's she's like covered, protected when she does get hit. It doesn't it changes everything? So yeah, yeah. And I, I think what we've talked about just in general, which is with like the prayer brings on this dynamic that is just really hard. I think as my father has said, it's really hard to wrap our head around why God would even invite, invite us into such an amazing um, opportunity. Yeah, Dad. So let, let me see if this helps. I, I've been doing a lot of study on baptism recently, and there are, there are benefits in, for us in our baptism. And yet, we can walk away from those things. We, we don't have, they're, they're not automatic. We have an option, we have a choice in that. Yeah. And, and I would say that this is somewhat the same way. There are prophetic words that come. And we can step outside of those things. We can move away from them. Yeah. And that is, God, God's not going to do it if we refuse to cooperate with Him. Um, so that, that's one sense of how this thing can work. Yeah. So, in the same way, baptism provides opportunity or certain benefits that we can or can not participate in. Prophecy, in the same way, can allow us to more or less actively participate in something and see it less or more fulfilled based off of our participation in it. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to do a better job. I I was told one of the times that I I do a really bad job of summarizing, and so anyone lit distance is uh, has no idea what was said. So I'm trying. <laughs> 
I'm trying to summarize so that way other people can at least get some feel for what was, was discussed. Anything else? Okay, then conclusions. Luke portrays this entire scene as Jesus and the disciples being tempted by Satan. Peter's betrayal is mirrored by the disciples. Betrayal of Jesus with the swords. So we know then that overcoming is where the true, that we overcome the, where the true battle lies is where, by using the right weapons. In this case, prayer. That's how we overcome. And just as amazing is, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that's what Jesus demonstrates even in his darkest moment one of his darkest, you know, here, is that he cares so much for his disciples that he wants to see them successful, even in that. Amen.